Sabbath rest. That the rest from our labor is not just one day out of seven. It's every single day because we do not get to heaven. We are not accepted by God based on our work or lack of work. We are accepted based on the finished work of Jesus. So in a spiritual sense, Jesus is our ultimate Sabbath rest. But at the same time, I've always encouraged you to to chill out and take a break. It's not wrong to devote a day to resting, to prayer, to Bible study. There are so many ways that stuff can wreak havoc in our lives. You can have fear about not having enough or anxiety that comes from worrying about the things you have. As Pastor Daniel speaks today about generosity, we'll understand that we all have room to be better givers. God is radically generous, and His grace opens the door for us to do the same. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with part one of his message entitled, Preparations to build. We are at the the last pre-construction phase of the tabernacle. If you've been tracking with us, remember God delivered the children of Israel by a mighty hand from the oppression and slavery of Egypt. And as they get on out into the wilderness, God makes a covenant with him. He says, listen, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And I have a way that I want you to worship. And on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses very specific details about how this portable worship tent is to be constructed. Every single detail is given. There's almost nothing left out. God uses tremendous specificity in explaining to them, this is what I want. But remember what happens as Moses is up on that mountain, when you get to Exodus chapter 32, the children of Israel start getting antsy. They don't have strong leadership and they're getting impatient. And so oftentimes, as we find in the Bible, once impatience happens, then the children of Israel, the people of God always do something that ends up getting them into trouble. You think about Abram and Sarai, God had promised them a son and time was going on. And so what happened is that they thought, man, God's not showing up and we need to help God along. So we're going to get something done. And they decided that uh, Sarai's handmaiden, Hagar, would become Abram's wife and they would have a child. And you remember they had Ishmael and all sorts of things have transpired since that moment between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac, God's promised son. So same way, on Mount Sinai, Moses comes down, they, Aaron made a golden calf for the people, and they worship. This is our God who delivered us from Egypt. And it created a big problem for them. People were struck down by a plague, and, and Moses, remember, he came down with those two tablets of stones containing the ten words, the ten commandments, and he broke them, symbolized you shattered the covenant. And chapters 32, 33, and 34 were all about God's mercy and his grace in reestablishing the covenant with the children of Israel that they had broken. Now, I'll be honest with you. That's a great reality about who God is because we all have broken the covenant that God has made with us. But God's faithfulness is greater than our faithlessness. 
God's perfections are greater than our imperfections. And the strength of the covenant that God has made with us is on his side of the wall. God knows that we don't keep the covenant. God knows that we are apt like sheep to go astray. But yet God is merciful still. And so in chapter 33 and 34, we find this reestablishment of the covenant. We saw that primarily last week in chapter 34. God reiterated the covenant to Moses. And remember how we ended last week where Moses, because he was spending time in the Lord's presence, his face was shining. The apostle Paul tells us that, that every time that Paul would leave the presence of the Lord, that radiance would start to diminish. But remember, we quoted the Psalms where it says they looked unto him and they were radiant. You and I are designed by God to be reflectors of the light. And unlike the glory of the first covenant, the law that is diminishing, our covenant stays strong. That radiance remains and grows even greater. And one of the most attractive things about the people of God when they're walking with the Lord is that radiance that they bring to the world. But when a church or when the people of God are not in the presence of the Almighty God, that radiance begins to diminish. And once it diminishes, then we're just like everybody else. But we are meant to be unique and radiate the glory of God. And we saw that at the end of chapter 34. Now moving into chapter 35, now it's, this is the last punch list. All that is left for the children of Israel before they construct and make all of the pieces of furniture and that portable worship tent, the tabernacle, all they needed was the willingness of the people and all the materials. And that's what chapter 35 is about. The willingness of the people and all of the materials necessary for building. So let's jump right on in. Exodus chapter 35, picking up in verse 1. It says, Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord had commanded you to do. Verse 2, Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Now, I don't know about you, but that strikes me as kind of weird. It just pops up there that before this preparation to build, once again, the, the need for Sabbath keeping comes up, right? But if you think about it in context, it makes sense why it's there. Because you could imagine that if God gave you all these floor plans and, and dimensions to build this thing, that you're like, man, we got to get to it in Jesus' name, you know? No rest days. We just need to work every single day until we get it done. But God wants to remind them that that Sabbath day still needs to be observed in the work of the Lord. To translate this concept into the New Testament, they were given a Martha-sized task. Remember when Jesus was at the house of Mary and Martha? And, and Martha was busy getting everything ready and she was cooking and she was cleaning. Jesus was here. She was going to bless the Lord. But Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, right? I remember Martha, she was wearied with much serving and she gets frustrated, really at Jesus. Because she says, Lord, my sister Mary has only sat here and you've just been talking to her while I'm working like a crazy person. Where's the love, Lord? That's the way I would translate it. Where's the love? 
she's like, where's the love? Remember what, what Jesus said to her? She said, listen, Martha, you are weary with much serving. Mary has chosen the better thing and won't be taken from her. See, Jesus is saying to Martha, in the midst of us serving, there's a time to serve, but don't, in the times of busyness and serving, neglect the rest that I ordained for you from the beginning. The reason God places Sabbath-keeping, resting, as the primary means to keep the covenant, the primary way that the covenant is held together is because ultimately our covenant is not held together by our work, but by God finishing our work that we can rest. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. And that's why this is right here, front and center. Before you guys start building this thing, listen, rest. Because the covenant is really kept because God has done the work. When you start thinking about this in the world that we live in where nobody knows how to rest, I mean, American culture in the 21st century might be one of the only cultures where people need vacations from their vacations. Like work, there's a sickness that we have, right? Like how many times do you go on vacation and you book the thing so tight and you have a million things to do that by the time you're done, you're like, I just can't wait to go home and rest. But it was your vacation. There, there's a, a franticness that we have in our culture. But God places it right in the beginning once again. You need to keep the Sabbath. He even goes so far here, if you notice, in the, at the end of verse 2, that if you don't keep the Sabbath, you'd be put to death. Now, I know what you all think. You think when you read that, you think, man, the God of the Old Testament, man, talk about being angry. Because that seems like a pretty harsh punishment for not resting. I mean, doesn't it? But you have to remember this. God values our lives more than our work. And right as the children of Israel, right as they began to break Sabbath, ultimately, they almost never kept the Sabbath. Don't forget how the history of the children of Israel go. They were supposed to leave the land fallow every seven years. And they didn't do it. And God ended up exiling them off the land for 70 years. Because God knew that once they started down the road of not honoring his will, that it was never going to just stop there. It was going to be progressive. And you and I know in the times that we've strayed from the narrow gate, the difficult way, it never ends at the first degree of rebellion. It always is progressive, isn't it? How many of us have found ourselves down roads that we never even dreamed we'd be down, but it began with one slight thing that opens up the door because the flesh is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. So God places a very strong boundary. In verse 3, of course, we get something new as well, that they shouldn't even kindle a fire throughout their dwellings. Kindling a fire is considered work. If you ever go to somebody from an Orthodox Jewish background on the Sabbath day, they will not even light a gas stove, not to kindle fire. But in the context, the idea of kindling fire, you could say, well, okay, I'm not going to work on the tabernacle, but I'm actually going to do the metal work at home. So by saying no kindling, in, no kindling fire in your dwelling, he's saying, look, even though it's the Sabbath day and you're not allowed to corporately do the work, don't also do it in the privacy of your own home. How many of us bring work home with us? Yeah, a lot of us, right? And God is saying, look, I don't want you to bring the work of the tabernacle home with you. We want one day completely off so that we can focus on our relationships with God. Now, as you all know, and we've talked about this a lot, because in Genesis, and again in Exodus, Sabbath keeping comes up a lot. Now, we know that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. 
that the rest from our labor is not just one day out of seven. It's every single day because we do not get to heaven. We are not accepted by God based on our work or lack of work. We are accepted based on the finished work of Jesus. So in a spiritual sense, Jesus is our ultimate Sabbath rest. But at the same time, I've always encouraged you to to chill out and take a break. It's not wrong to devote a day to resting, to prayer, to Bible study. Most of us, if you look at the, your last two months of your life, that Sabbath day is filled with all sorts of work. How many of us mow the lawn on the Sabbath day? Weed the garden on the Sabbath day? Frantically shop on the Sabbath day? So God's design for you, he realizes that the human body needs adequate rest. All the research coming out, we live in an overstimulated, overcaffeinated, not properly rested culture right now. And so God in his own law says, look, I want you to rest. So I want to encourage you, don't be legalistic in your Sabbath keeping. Because some, some of you in the name of Sabbath, you are even more stressed out. Well, I can't believe you turned on the light bulb, you know. And you stress yourself out more on the Sabbath day. But but rest in Jesus' name. It's okay to take a nap on the Sabbath day. It's okay to just waste your day reading the Bible. I mean, what a novel concept. Turning on worship music and just enjoying a day. Spending time with your family. I mean, these are great Sabbathing activities. And so don't forsake those things. But also don't think that when you do them, that they save you. Because the only thing that saves you is Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's that, that's that biblical balance between legalism and between throwing it all out like it didn't matter. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, and it is okay to rest. Now, in verse 4, look at what happens. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, or some of you have sea cows in your, in your um, translation there, and acacia wood, and for those of you who are reading the King James, shittim wood. Verse 8, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Now, all of these different materials were all the things that we've already seen as these are the things necessary to build the tabernacle. Now, I want you to notice this. He says, the Lord commanded that we take an offering and whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring an offering to the Lord. Now, I think this is important because we know in the Bible, tithing is a principle in the Old Testament. And a tithe literally means a tenth. That was the standard of the tithe part. But when you read the word tithe, what do you always find after it? There's two other words, and offering. So the tithe was, the 10% was the standard, and then you had the offering, which was over and above, right? And if you were keeping the law, that would be the expectation. A tenth plus something over and above. Now, when you get into the New Testament, of course, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, specifically, we learn about what people commonly call grace giving. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9, 7. It says, so let each one give as he proposes in his heart, 
not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So here in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says, we should give with a generous heart, not because we have to and not grumpily, but cheerfully as unto the Lord. Now, you know, we live in a culture. It's, I was just listening to a study on on the psychology of the way we do economics. And, and I was listening to one scholar who was saying that what we have in 21st century America, especially in our capitalistic culture, is that you have anxiety or fear about the future, which leads to scarcity. There's always a fear that you're not going to have enough, which leads to accumulation. And once you end up with an accumulation, then ultimately you have more anxiety that leads to sinfulness. If you've ever spent time with people who are homeless, if they get a meal, they'll share it with each other. But when you're around people who have means, oftentimes they don't want to share with anybody. Because what happens is, is that because we fear the future, we have a scarcity mentality which drives us to accumulation. And if somebody wants to take something from us or someone asks for it, we're like, no, that's mine. It's mine. And it's interesting that in the wealthiest country in the world, we do not have a generous disposition. But let me say this. We shouldn't expect people who don't believe in God to be generous because you're given over to your own fears of the future, but not so for the people of God. Brothers and sisters, I'm simply going to challenge you. I guarantee that God wants all of us, and I say all as in all, including me, to be more generous than we are. Why? Because God is the most radically generous person in the world. God is so exceedingly extravagant in his generosity. And when I read 2 Corinthians 9, 7, I never think, well, I'm not a cheerful giver, so I'm not going to give. Or because it's not legal, why would I want to give a tenth? The problem with being a grace-based giver is why would you only want to give a tenth? That's the problem with grace. When it's law, you say, well, I just have to give my 10 and then I'll give my little offering on top. So maybe 10 and a quarter percent and I'm doing it based on the law. But when it's grace-based, then all bets are off the table. Because grace actually removes the lid. At every juncture, you say, I wonder what Jesus would do. And then you start thinking, I know what Jesus would do. And then you think, I don't know if I really want to follow Jesus. Because Jesus gave up his own life so that others would have life. Jesus gave of his own means, his resources, so that others may have life imparted to them. So in a culture, I don't think it's wrong to accumulate. I don't think it's wrong to enjoy the fruits of your labors. But I also think that God wants us all to be radically generous in who we are. And the statistics in Christian churches are not very pretty when it comes to giving. Not only of finances, but also of time and energy. And so, what we're going to find here is Moses takes a free will offering, and by the end of this chapter, he's going to have to tell him to stop giving. I've never once been to a Christian church in America where a pastor said, listen, you guys got to stop giving. You gave too much. Keep it for yourselves. Not one time. Now, you might be thinking, well, listen, you know, Pastor Daniel, I mean, this is the Bible. These people were slaves for the last 400 years. They're brand new. 
living free. They got the blessings of a huge offering from the Egyptians, and now they're going to be so generous with their giving that Moses is going to be like, you guys need to lay off the giving stuff. Chill. That should challenge us at the very least. Now listen, I believe giving is between a person and the Lord. So I don't, just so you know, I don't ever look at tithe reports. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know who gives, who doesn't give. But one thing I do know is that we find in the Gospels that Jesus knows who gives. He does. And I think if you're not a giver, you need to ask yourself, why? Why? Why am I not a cheerful giver? Because my personal belief is that giving is a faith issue and it's a love and trust issue. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. True love gives. And I realize in a tough economy, in a culture of accumulation, there's a million reasons not to give. But I'm here to tell you that the one reason to give radically trumps all the reasons not to give. And the one reason to give is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the reality that in the end of the day, we don't take any of this stuff with us anyway. In the end of the day, as we learn in the Bible, we we came from the womb naked, and guess how we go back? In our birthday suits. There is no U-Haul on the way to your eternity. I've never once seen a funeral procession with a hearse with a U-Haul on the back of it. Remember that bumper sticker? Classic 80s. He who dies with the most... Toys, wins. You ever remember that bumper sticker? They don't have that one anymore. You know why? Because then the follow-up bumper sticker came out that he who dies with the most toys is still dead. (laughs) It's a fitting critique. We have to remember that the things that we get to enjoy, and we all, listen, we're, we're grateful everyone in here is enclosed today, and we say praise the Lord for that. Some with more style than maybe others, and we say, hey, praise the Lord. Different strokes for different folks. So we all get to enjoy the fruits of our labors, but we should, as God is doing a work of grace in our lives, we should find ourselves becoming more and more like him and less and less like the people we were before. And so generosity, not only in finances, that's just one area of life, but generosity in time, in 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 service, oftentimes the biggest generous things that we can do for people are simply taking the time to acknowledge them. Just simply saying thank you or hi. It's a huge thing. But we should be radically generous as humans with all that God has entrusted to us. Time, talents, treasures. But if we look at the core of our hearts, all of us struggle with generosity, don't we? Because we don't trust we know that Jesus told us to look at the, the sparrows. And the sparrows, they don't, they don't have like, you know, worm farms. You ever see, a, you know, a bunch of birds and they got like a, a worm harvesting farm, genetically modified? Pumping extra chemicals to get bigger, fatter worms. Jesus is Giving is between a person and the Lord, but as we heard today, there is a difference between law-based giving and grace-based giving. 
As Pastor Daniel challenged you, the reason to give is the finished work of Jesus. That goes way beyond 10%. It's our joy to bring you Jesus is Real Radio each day here on this station. We want to give you the opportunity to partner with us here at Jesus is Real Radio so we can bring the ministry to as many people as possible. Simply log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and select Partner from the main menu. There you can help spread God's Word by becoming a monthly supporter or by giving a one-time gift. For most of us, our smartphone is an extension of our body. They are constantly ringing and dinging, telling us what to do and where to go next. We want to encourage you to subscribe to the Jesus Is Real podcast. Each week, the programs right here on the radio are available in podcast format. So if you miss one of the broadcasts, you can always catch up by subscribing to the Jesus Is Real podcast. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com. Make sure to tune in again as Pastor Daniel will share how every part of the body of Christ should be involved with the maintenance and building of the work of the Lord. Everyone can add what they have to God's kingdom. There's more to come from Daniel's series entitled Tabernacle. Please glance at the clock right now and make plans to join us again for another edition of Jesus is Real Radio.